0: Today, we continue our series on the new era of global and domestic politics. In this episode, we focus on the changing political environment inside the United States.
1: We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity.
0: Welcome to this episode of The Socialist Program. I'm Nicole Roussel, a producer of the show, here with host Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on the show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show on patreon.com slash the socialist program. Today, like I said, we're going to continue a series of conversations on The Socialist Program on our orientation toward the current period which we believe will be a dramatic one for politics both inside the United States and globally as the U.S. reorients for major power conflict. Today, we're gonna focus on U.S. domestic politics. Last week, we talked about the international situation and what we described as a new era in global politics. We used the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, 2022 as the point of demarcation. The Russian military action indeed has inaugurated a new period of global politics And we really encourage you to give that show a listen if you missed the episode from last Tuesday, and you can find it on any podcast platform, any app that you use for podcasts. And you can check out all the ones that are available on our link tree at The Socialist Program. That's linktr.ee slash The Socialist Program. But today, as I said, we're going to focus on very significant changes inside the United States and the domestic political situation. And we believe that the changes in the domestic political situation could have very far-reaching ramifications. And this, again, is the second part of an ongoing series of shows from The Socialist Program. Brian, you've been talking and writing about the U.S. domestic political situation in a series of presentations during the last couple of months. You've also authored a new piece called The Counter-Revolutionary Assault on Democratic Rights and Democracy. And this document will be available for the public soon, and we will announce that as soon as it is available on this show. I want to get started today and talk to you about some of your core conclusions. We won't be able to do all of this in one show, so we'll definitely come back to this topic. But before we get into that, I also just want to let our audience know that today, September 13th, 2022, today is the anniversary of the massacre that took place at the New York State Correctional Facility at Attica. Attica on September 13th, 1971, so 51 years ago. Brian, you were there. You were at Attica at that time. So before we get started on our main topic, I just want to take a moment both to remember Attica and the massacre that happened there. And I mean, I'm sure there's many people who also don't know anything about it. So I'd love to have you give them some understanding of what happened there and what you saw.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that, Nicole. I think it's really important for people to remember The uprising at Attica Prison that began September 19th and ended with a terrible massacre organized by Governor Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York State, four days later on September 13th. When we say I was there, I wasn't inside the prison. I was not a prisoner at Attica. I was a teenager and I was a member of the Prisoners Solidarity Committee, the PSC, which was organizing in Western New York and around the country in support of a very strong prison or prisoners' rights movement that was underway. We had organized support for the prisoners at Auburn prison. Auburn is close to Attica, it's in western New York. The Auburn prisoners had risen up earlier, about a year earlier, we helped form a defense committee for the prisoners, the leaders of that prison uprising who were facing many, many decades in prison. Then Attica happened on September 9th, 1971. Again, I was a political activist. I was an organizer. I was also a teenager at that time. But along with other members of the Prisoner Solidarity Committee from New York City and Buffalo, New York, we came to Attica prison, not September 9th, but the next day, September 10th. And we brought relatives of prisoners who were involved in the uprising. And the uprising was taking place in what was called the D-Block, one quarter, one quadrant of the prison. And the prisoners' demands were very eloquently stated. They demanded far-reaching prison reform. The conditions at Attica were awful. We called it a concentration camp for poor people. Its conditions were like a concentration camp, as were the conditions for prisoners around the country. And that was before The new accelerated era of mass incarceration began, which Joe Biden helped inaugurate with the Criminal Justice Reform, so-called Act, in 1994, which had the effect of doubling the U.S. prison population. It took 200 years for the U.S. to reach the 1 million mark for the number of people in prison, but only about 15 years after that to reach another million. So now the U.S. has 2.3 million people in prison. Fifteen years ago, it had two million people in prison. One out of every four prisoners, more or less, in the world is a prisoner in a U.S. prison. So it says so much about the state of American democracy. Well, anyway, I came to Attica prison with other political activists, and we brought relatives who were, of course, petrified about what might happen. We stayed outside the prison for three days until right before the massacre, Uh, We knew by that time that negotiations had been canceled. We took relatives out of the area. It was very dangerous because it was more or less a lynch mob atmosphere in Attica. Attica is a small rural town. At that time, at least, it was almost all white. The main employer for the town was the prison itself. And 10 prison guards had been taken hostage at the beginning of the uprising as a way of trying to defend the prisoners were trying to prevent a massacre so they took hostages and at the end on september 13th when the massacre happened the state the new york state police and the guard and local police they just let loose they fired hundreds of rounds at the prisoners and in fact they shot the prison guards they shot the hostages the hostages were killed by new york state they didn't give a damn about anybody's life the prisoners or the hostages. But afterwards, the story was put out by the cops, by the state police and by the government, that the guards who had died, had died because the prisoners showing their absolute brutality had slit their throat. But in fact, it turned out when a very courageous coroner in Monroe County, the county where Rochester, New York is located, said, no, no, Upon examination of the bodies of the dead guards, none of them had their throats slit. All of them had been shot dead by the firearms carried by their own comrades and the state police and other prison guards, etc. But at least for the first few days after the massacre, because the story was that the prisoners had slit the throats of the guards, it was the prisoners who were the victims of the violence who were completely demonized. Anyway, the Attica brothers went to court. Many were sentenced, again, to new prison terms afterwards, but there was a huge political and legal struggle in support of the Attica brothers, as they were called. There was a mass movement for prison reform. The Attica uprising, by the way, took place three weeks after the assassination of George Jackson in California, and of course, George Jackson was a leading prison advocate, a leader of the Black Panther Party. He was murdered in California on August 21st, 1971, and prisoners around the country went on strike in solidarity with George Jackson and the other fighters for prison reform. The Attica uprising on September 9th, 1971 was both a result of prison conditions at Attica, but also as part of this nationwide uprising that was taking place in that eventful year, demanding far-reaching reforms. And- Nelson Rockefeller from the Rockefeller family gave the bourgeoisie's response on September 13th when instead of giving reforms, much needed reforms to change the inhuman conditions that prisoners faced, they gave the prisoners a massacre instead. So I'm glad we're mentioning it. 51 years later, at that time, our slogan was Attica means fight back because that was the spirit of Attica. That was the spirit of George Jackson, the spirit of his younger brother, Jonathan Jackson, the spirit of all of those people fighting for social change at that time. So thank you, Nicole, for mentioning it. And again, we'll always remember the Attica prisoners and their heroism.
0: It's such an incredible story to be able to hear and to actually have an eyewitness account of what happened. It's who was actually there, who can really talk through the real facts on the ground, especially with so many lies that we know happen in the press, just like Rockefeller, you know, going out and saying, quote, that the prisoners carried out the cold blood killings they had threatened to from the outset, unquote, until medical examiner confirmed, oh, no, actually, that was all caused by law enforcement. That was all the cops. You know, it's just a really valuable memory to have.
1: I also want to mention for people who want to learn more about Attica, there are several movies that have been made about the uprising, but there's a a relatively new book called Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy written by Dr. Heather Ann Thompson. She is a historian at the University of Michigan.
0: Brian, let's turn to our main topic. Again, you've been talking and writing about the U.S. domestic political situation in in its more current sense, although very much an extension of the Attica uprising 51 years ago and the massacre. I want to talk to you about some of the conclusions, some of the main and core components from the new document that you've written called The Counter-Revolutionary Assault on Democratic Rights and Democracy. In that document, you wrote, quote, The 2020 election and its violent aftermath was a clear sign of extreme volatility within the bourgeois political system. For the first time since 1860 and 1876, there was a refusal within a significant sector of the ruling class to accept an election outcome on the federal level. The storming of the Capitol on January 6th and the temporary dispersal of a sitting Congress by a violent mob clearly indicated a new stage in political volatility. Brian, can you talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, and again,
1: I think we can just briefly touch on it because it's so recent in everyone's memory, and it was such a spectacle that in some ways it's, I think, still fresh in most people's minds. But the reason that the January 6th violent assault on the Capitol, where the pro-Trump mob was chanting, hang Mike Pence, who was Trump's vice president, and if they had gotten to Mike Pence, he would undoubtedly have been hurt or perhaps killed. And Pence and the other politicians in the Congress had to disperse. They had to run for their lives, basically. And thousands of people took over the Capitol. You know, that was something that was profoundly unsettling for the fortunes of U.S. imperialism on a global level. So when we say extreme volatility, the reason that's important is that the volatility about the so-called peaceful transfer of power, or the refusal of Trump, the sitting president, and many, many, many of his supporters, millions of them, and many of his allies in Congress, many of them, the refusal to accept the election outcome and the attempt to use force to overturn the election outcome, was a signal that the U.S. political system wasn't as stable as it was made out to be. This is very important for the fortunes of US imperialism because US diplomacy, US soft power, the presentation about what the US is all around the world is that it's a country that's unlike all others in the sense that it has profound stability for its ruling class, that its democratic institutions are stable, that even if one side wins or one side loses Both sides, both the Democrats and the Republicans, the two ruling class parties that take turns sharing power, agree that they are going to peacefully step back rather than try to stage a coup or use military force or mob violence to overturn the election outcome. So the U.S., when it's sort of telling the rest of the world, follow us, we are the great democracy, a big part of that premise of democracy is that it's a stable system, that the system has injustice in it, it makes mistakes, but it corrects those mistakes without resorting to civil war. And in the document, I said this was the first time since 1860 or 1876 where an election outcome wasn't fully accepted, at least on this basis. Of course, that needs Some qualification because there was, of course, and we'll talk about it the 2000 election where George W. Bush was given the presidency by a five to four majority by the Supreme Court. The conservative majority in the Supreme Court gave Bush that election in 2000, even though he had lost the popular vote by a half million. And they gave it to him by stopping the vote count in the state of Florida. When the difference, I believe, between the two sides was like 145 votes or something like that out of 6 million cast. So the Supreme Court ordered the vote count to stop. And so when it stopped, Bush had 145 more votes than Gore in the state of Florida. And thus he was given the presidency. And Gore surrendered right away. Gore said, okay, we lost. He didn't try to overturn the election outcome because the rules of the road for American bourgeois politics is that before your own interests, you have to preserve the image of the empire. You have to preserve the image of this, quote, democracy, I'm using air quotes, in order to show the superiority of our system against all other systems. This is one of the reasons that America is, quote, exceptional, again, using air quotes, as it tells the rest of the world, we are the leaders of democracy. A big part of that premise is on the acceptance by the two ruling class parties that there will be a peaceful transfer of power no matter what, because the system comes first. We put the interests of the capitalist imperialist empire before our own narrow electoral interests when it comes to winning and losing. And Trump, using mob violence, overturned that basic principle of bourgeois politics or American bourgeois politics, And that was an expression of extreme volatility.
0: I was 12 when that election happened, and I remember I was so incensed and so confused. It made no sense as a kid. I mean, it doesn't make sense now either. You know, it was really such a shocking turn of events. And then the fact that he just gave in, that Gore just gave in. In the more current moment here in 2020, the Republicans, or at least Trump and his team, tried to overturn an election outcome. But in a way, the Democrats had also argued in this current moment, they had argued that the 2016 election was also invalid. They tried to overturn the election outcome by impeaching Trump for having won the election because of Russian interference. That, as we know, was very deeply a fraud. It was not true. But there was a difference and there is a difference between what the Democrats did and what the Republicans under Trump tried to do on January 6th in the storming of the Capitol and in the months after the 2020 election. I'm going to quote again from the document that you wrote because it speaks directly to this. Quote, of course, the Democratic Party leadership has tried to undo the outcome of the 2016 election, trying to use non-electoral means to oust Trump from the White House. But impeachment would still have left Pence as president and the Republican Party still in charge of the White House. Trump's effort was unique. An effort to overturn the electoral outcome before it became certified through the normal congressional certification process. The use of physical pressure on Congress was unheard of in the modern era. Under the guidance of Trump, right wing masses, including overt fascist fighters, stormed the Congress and temporarily dispersed it at the moment the presidential vote was to be certified. And it's noteworthy 147 Republicans in Congress voted against the certification of Biden as president even after the violent mob had dispersed Congress earlier in the day. A large majority of them ultimately defended Trump post-January 6th as well. Trump's insolent and illegal effort to overturn the election outcome did not result in his arrest. His only punishment was that he lost his Twitter page. Even though the storming of the Congress on January 6th severely damaged the global reputation of the U.S. bourgeois system, the ruling class was afraid to arrest Trump, unquote. And Brian, we talked about this over and over when this happened. I mean, that his only punishment was that he lost his Twitter page. But talk a little bit more about this dynamic for our audience.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's quite obvious that the reason Trump was not arrested, even though this was clearly a seditious act and it had been long planned, and we don't even know still how far reaching the conspiracy to overturn the election outcome was. But we certainly know that the The National Guard didn't show up. The military wasn't mobilized. Even though the Congress, the seat of government for the United States, was stormed by a violent mob, and even though Congress was dispersed, it was basically small detachments of essentially the Metropolitan Police Department and some elements of the Capitol Police, not many, who were fighting pitch battles with the mob at different entrances of the Capitol building, In spite of all of this, and in spite of not knowing how far and deep the conspiracy went, Trump was basically slapped on the wrist. He lost his Twitter handle, which was actually very impactful because Trump had a huge following, still has a huge following, has even a stronger following now, I think. He was temporarily off balance after January 6th, but because of the way the Democrats attacked him they actually re-fortified and strengthened Trump's hand, I would say. But at the time, Trump was off balance, but he wasn't arrested. And the reason he wasn't arrested, Nicole, is very simple. It's not that he wasn't guilty of sedition, he was. But the ruling class, centers of law enforcement, the so-called criminal justice system, were afraid to arrest Trump Because they're afraid, basically, of the danger of civil war or extreme violence. Because 73 million people voted for Trump, and tens of millions of them were convinced by their leader, by Donald Trump, that the election was corrupted, that it was stolen, that their vote had been sort of mitigated or extinguished by fraud, by fraud and corruption by the state. And even though there was no proof of it, and even though Trump went to the court over and over again, including courts where the judges were appointed by Trump, and he didn't get a favorable ruling, Trump kept going and going and going. And as a result, I would say 30 or 40 million people who were Trump voters probably thought that the the people who staged the uprising on January 6th were righteous patriots. And so the arrest of Trump, Then or now would have provoked a possible armed clash inside the United States. So instead, the people who were arrested on January 6th, most of them were arrested afterwards, by the way, because the police really didn't crack down on them. In fact, you know, there were images of Capitol Police sort of escorting some of the January 6th protesters out of the Capitol at the end of the violence. They weren't immediately arrested, but later there have been many, many arrests. And it's usually and mainly low-level people who were involved in January 6th. Some of them hadn't even gone into the Capitol building. They were sort of the low-hanging fruit for the criminal justice system. There were some fascist forces who are being repressed by the state who played a principal role in the violence, and that would be the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters. But in general, the state has focused more or less, in addition to the small number of fascists who have been arrested and they have been targeted by the state, the state has basically gone after you know individuals who are easy to indict, easy to prosecute, and easy to convict. But the real leaders of this effort to undo the election, which would include Donald Trump and his close-in entourage they remain untouched by the criminal justice system. And it's because of fear by the other sectors of the ruling class about the danger of civil war.
0: Right, I mean, it was just months prior that there were far more people in the streets who were protesting in the uprising against George Floyd's murder. You know, they were peaceful protesters and a lot of those people got arrested as they were protesting. Yet another piece of evidence, like very clearly the ruling class was in fact afraid to arrest Trump. There's one other
1: thing, though, Nicole, that I want to mention, because if we remember the sequence of events, the uprising against racism that started in the spring of 2020, George Floyd was killed May 25th, 2020, and millions, tens of millions of people went into the streets over the next six to eight weeks. But then after the election in November 2020, and the fact that Trump was contesting the election outcome, Here in Washington, D.C., where you and I are and where we participated in these mass protests against racism and against racist police violence, the scene on the streets shifted very dramatically. The momentum shifted to the Proud Boys. The momentum shifted to the fascists. There was lots of fascist mobilization here, even in Washington, D.C., where the population is still almost 50% African-American the fascist forces like the Proud Boys were running the streets. And there was a lot of violence carried out against progressive demonstrators, a lot of violence against random black people if they happened to run into these fascist mobs. And the violence had become so inflamed that if you remember on January 4th and 5th, and especially January 5th, the day before January 6th, progressive forces in DC actually decided to not go forward with planned protests because the violence from the fascists was so intense. And the reason the fascist violence was so intense was not because they were so large in number, but they were being coddled by the police forces. I mean, the Proud Boys would come in in mob formation, attack progressive individuals or Black people who were either in protests or Black people who just happened to be walking by. And the real violence, mob violence, and the cops treated the Proud Boys like with kid gloves. So they were very, very emboldened. They thought they had the run of the place. So this was a very dynamic period. You had the summer of 2020, the uprising against racism. Trump tried to enforce martial law all around the country on the last day of May, right before that famous June 1st event where he marched across Lafayette Park and cleared the park, and used police violence to clear the park in order to have a photo op taken in front of St. John's Church, where Trump was holding a Bible. During that time period, during that day, Trump had a conference call with all the governors insisting that they crack down. And most of the Democratic governors were going along with it. And in fact, Democratic mayors, including the mayor in Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, she declared a, a curfew on that same day. So you had the government under Trump's leadership sort of swinging in to sort of crack down, use military means to stop what were protests around the country, mainly peaceful protests, not exclusively, but mainly. So that was one period of extreme volatility. By the way, Trump didn't get away with it. And some of the Democrats, including the mayor of D.C., changed their tune because instead of being intimidated by police violence, more and more people kept coming into the streets but that was a period of extreme volatility. And then after the election, another period of extreme volatility, but the the momentum had shifted to the right, to the fascists. They were dominating the street. Then January 6th happened, and Trump's hopes to overturn the election sort of capped or ended that period. And that shook up the ruling class. And again, Trump lost his Twitter handle, but he was not arrested. He was impeached by the Democrats, which was a ridiculous exercise because they impeached him just as he was leaving office so it was a completely meaningless theatrical endeavor and Trump could point to it and say well this is just political theater which in a way it was but if Trump had been arrested at that time for sedition that would have been very impactful because at that time a lot of the leaders of the Republican Party were distancing themselves from Trump at that moment that would have been very impactful but the ruling class again, decided not to arrest Trump. They were fearful of Trump and especially fearful of the Trump base.
0: Vital, vital context and background for moving into this next phase. So I'm going to go back to the document. And I want to say, too, that this document is based on a speech that you made to the Fifth Party Congress of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And like I said, now we're going to move into this next, I think, very, very important component and some of the main theses of the document. Quote, What I want to focus on now is a new development that I believe will be remembered as a true turning point in U.S. politics. Of course, the context of the past few years, with its extreme volatility and its delegitimization of bourgeois politics, has to be viewed as the backdrop. The thing that is new, and I believe represents a turning point, was the Supreme Court decision on the Dobbs case that eliminated the federal right to an abortion and extinguished abortion access in large parts of the country. So, Brian, this is, again, this is what you want to focus on. This is, I think, the newest development that is, like you say, a turning point.
1: Yeah. And again, we're going to have a series of discussions, Nicole. And the document that you're talking about will be made public very shortly. We're just going through, you know, sort of final edits. But the turning point was the Dobbs decision because the Roe versus Wade decision of the Supreme Court 50 years ago, almost 50 years ago, it'll be 50 years in January, 2023. That decision granted women the right to an abortion everywhere in the United States. And it was a very popular right because women who are either pregnant or the mothers of girls who are pregnant with unwanted pregnancies want to be able to control their own bodies and make the decision whether or not to give birth. In other words, generally speaking, the majority of the population has long thought that women and all of those who need abortion rights, those who want to terminate a pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy or a dangerous pregnancy must have that right. And so Roe v. Wade was not only a right, it was a very popular right it wasn't ensconced by congressional legislation we can talk about that a little bit more but the supreme court ruled by a 7 to 2 margin during the era of richard nixon who was not liberal that women all around the united states had this right so the fact that 50 years later by a vote of 6 to 3 six rich lawyers could eviscerate and extinguish the rights of women and all of those who want to have an abortion of the right to control their own bodies. And the fact that they got away with it was, I believe, a turning point because the Supreme Court's decision was premised on this conclusion. If rights that we think we have were not ensconced, enshrined in the original constitution that was adopted in secret, in 1787, or were added to the Constitution through the addition of other amendments like the Bill of Rights or the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the post-Civil War amendments that ended slavery and gave Black men the right to vote, unless the Constitution has rights included in its original form or in amendments, they're not really recognized as Rights that must be maintained. In other words, existing legal precedent about rights that are outside the Constitution are up for grabs. And by getting rid of a popular right, and there are many polls that show that not only is abortion rights supported by the majority of the population, but some of the polls show that the majority of Republicans and certainly the majority of Republican women support the right to abortion. And the fact that the Supreme Court could take that right away, I think, and they couldn't have done it 20 years ago or 30 years ago, but now they feel emboldened. And because the premise of the extinguishing of this right is that it didn't exist in the original constitution or the constitution's amendments, that means all of the other rights that we think we have, like the civil rights that were adopted not by constitutional amendment, but by the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, or the 1965 Voting Rights Act, that was really the way black people in the South got the right to vote, that other rights that women have, rights that the LGBT community have won through struggle, including the rights to marry, the right of marriage and of marriage equality, all of these rights Or labor rights, the rights that were won in the 1930s during the uprising of the left and the labor movement, including the right to unionize. All of these things that we consider to be rights will now be up for grabs. And in fact, the ruling class, the right wing of the ruling class in the United States, the right wing, and it's a very organized right wing, they've been working in the background for 50 years. Ever since Roe, well, really ever since the civil rights movement, to try to find a way to take back all of the rights that were achieved by labor, by black America, by immigrants, by women, by the LGBTQ community, by the disabled, environmentalists, the ability of the government to limit emissions, all of these rights and policies are up for grabs. And the right wing wants to roll all of that back. The United States was not a democracy At the time of the 1787 Constitution. The word democracy never appears in the 1787 Constitution. There's no right to vote for the vast majority of the population. It's not just women and the enslaved populations that were deprived of the right to vote. White men without property were not entitled to vote after 1787. This was a very ruling class controlled form of democracy. White men only without property only won the right to vote in the 1828 election, that was like 40 years after the constitution or almost 40 years. I mean, it was not a democratic system and you see the right wing in the US government, the right wing in the ruling class, which has been organizing behind the scenes, but now feels more emboldened because Trump and the Trump factor has enlivened a mass base for the right wing. They feel that they can use the same legal premise that if it's not in the original constitution or its amendments, these rights are up for grabs. And so their intention now is to roll back every right that's not in the Constitution. The original target of the right wing after the passage of the 64 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, and the affirmative action programs that became widespread in the late 1960s and 1970s, the real focus of their attack was against the movement that brought those rights to the fore. And by that, I mean the black community, the uprising that took place by black America, the, the civil rights movement that went into full steam, starting with the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 and led to a vast civil rights movement in the South. And then as it spread to the North and to the West, it also spread in the form of insurrection and rebellions. In 1964 and 65, 66, from New York, from Harlem, Philadelphia, Chicago, Rochester, New York, Watts, Newark, New Jersey, Detroit, I mean, hundreds of cities were in rebellion. And under those circumstances, the very anti-democratic, undemocratic ruling class in America was forced to grant some concessions. And the right wing wanted to take those concessions back, any impediment to the rule of capital. But since the detonator for all of these new rights was Black America, the right wing knew that if they took on Black America in a frontal attack, the mood was too militant, too widespread, the Black community was too strong. So instead, they decided on abortion as a get started issue, a wedge issue. They could present it as a moral or ethical issue, an issue about life, about the right to life about the right of the unborn, et cetera, et cetera. It could have a religious connotation. And so it became the basis for right-wing organizing because the, the real target, which was black America, first and foremost, black America was too formidable of an opponent. So now that they've succeeded in extinguishing abortion rights, as I said, a very popular right, including among conservatives or many conservatives, The goal now for the ruling class will be to completely limit or mute Black voting power. It will be to undo all of the efforts to provide social and political equality rights for women and the LGBTQ community and disabled people. It will be to target labor. That's what's coming. And I want to conclude, Nicole, this part by saying that the real problem that the ruling class, the right wing of the ruling class has always had, at least in the recent period, is that the composition of the United States changed, the consciousness of the country changed. It changed because of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, and then the women's movement, and then what was called the gay rights movement, and the disabled movement, and the the youth movement, the anti-war movement. All of those rights were achieved because of the struggle of those communities. But there was another factor, a second factor. And the second factor was the demographic change in the United States. As democracy expanded, as more people were allowed to participate in democracy, as Black America was able to vote really for the first time because of the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, the popular demographics in the country shifted politically in a way that was unfavorable for the right. So now you have, for instance, 83% of the population lives in an urban environment. Most of the people living in cities do not agree with the program of the ultra right. So if you have this vast part of the population that can vote, that previously could not vote, And you have a changing demographic where more and more of the electorate is in the cities. That's very, very unfavorable for the agenda of the far right. So the use of the Supreme Court, an unelected body, to undo or eviscerate a democratic right like abortion rights is now going to be the vehicle of choice to eviscerate other rights, because you can't do it simply through the popular vote. And in fact, the right wing can't even get elected through the popular vote. Donald Trump got 73 million votes. That was more votes than any other Republican ever. That's pretty big, that's huge. We have to assess and analyze the support of the Trump vote. But there's another factor that the right wing is acutely aware of, is that while Trump got the most votes ever for the Republicans, Joe Biden got seven million more votes. He got seven million more votes. That is an indication that the demographics have turned in an unfavorable way for the agenda of the right wing. And since 1988, since the election of George H.W. Bush, since 1988, all the way up until the 2020 election, the Republican Party has only won the popular vote one time. That was in 2004 when George W. Bush, who shouldn't have even been the incumbent because he lost the 2000 election, but he was the incumbent because the Supreme Court had given him the 2000 election, he won the popular vote against John Kerry only in 2004. But 1992, 1996, 2000, 2008, 2012, 2016, and even the last election in 2020. The Republicans could not win the majority vote because of the shifting demographics. So the right wing in the ruling class now knows that they can't do it through popular democracy. They have to limit or end popular or any form of popular democracy in order to push through their agenda. They can use the Supreme Court. They can use the Federal Reserve, where it's a banker's bank, to impose draconian economic policies on the masses of people. And they can use state legislatures, which, because of racist gerrymandering at the state level, are very much skewed towards the Republican Party. The Republicans dominate 30 of the state legislatures. And ultimately, they've been able to succeed or stay afloat because of the Electoral College. Without the Electoral College, all of the justices appointed by the Supreme Court in the last 25 years, with the exception of the first years of George W. Bush, and again, he was the president because of a stolen election, all of the Supreme Court justices would have been appointed by Democrats. So instead, we have a right-wing court dominated by right-wingers, hard right-wingers, and they're making these key decisions to eviscerate social and political and economic rights in an unelected way. And that's how the right-wing wants it, because the changing demographics in the United States are unfavorable for right-wing outcomes.
0: Okay, Brian, that's really important context. And in order to fully understand where the far right of the ruling class is going and how they're making concerted efforts to limit the impact of popular democracy, we should study some of the other Supreme Court cases that have either already been decided or are about to come before the court including the very important North Carolina gerrymandering case, Moore v. Harper, which has been taken up by the Supreme Court to be heard in their next session. That case will be premised on a legal theory promoted by the right wing called the Independent State Legislature Theory, which, if accepted and ruled unfavorably by the U.S. Supreme Court, will make the January 6th attack on the Capitol nothing more than a dress rehearsal or essentially a precursor for the elimination of bourgeois democratic forms that people might've taken for granted, like the very basic idea of one person, one vote. So that's what we're gonna take up in our next conversation as we continue to explore the sharp changes and the shifts going on inside the domestic political situation here in the United States. We'll come back to this next week.
1: Thank you, Nicole. And for our audience, thank you for your continued support for this kind of independent programming, independent socialist programming, We can't do this show without you. So if you're not a subscriber, if you're not a part of the Patreon program, please do so. Go to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program and subscribe. You could subscribe for $5 a month or $10 a month, $20. Some people give more if they can. We have no corporate institutional backing like that. So we need you. We need the people who like the show or rely on the show to do your part. And we look forward to continuing this discussion about the accelerating attacks on democratic rights in the United States and on basic bourgeois democratic forms. The importance of the outcome of these struggles and their unfolding, this is a dynamic moment in U.S. history, the importance of the outcome cannot be overstated.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News.